Welcome to church. Welcome to Kesed. I just want to thank you for being here, especially uh, those of you who are maybe visiting and are new. Uh, I recognize that, that coming to church can be really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And uh, I think you picked a, a great uh, service to experience because we're in a series right now talking about that, talking about church, talking about a lot of the beautiful things about it. And also within this series, we will talk a bit about some of its struggles. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for, uh, for being part of it. Uh, for those of you who call this your church home, thank you as well. Thank you for deciding to be a part of something that uh, can be uncomfortable sometimes. And uh, I think today, uh, for some of you, might be one of those services. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, we're going to do something within this service that was so uncomfortable, I actually had a few of our team members and even a couple of our pastors come to me and say, did you really pray about this? <laughs> and I said, sure did. So we're going to do it because uh, I think it's important. Uh, last week, uh, Chris, Pastor Chris talked about uh, trendy and uh, kind of the idea of, of how it is important to recognize your community and how to communicate with your community. And a lot of that happens within trends. Well, today we're going to swing completely the opposite direction. We're going to talk about traditions. Um, traditions are a really substantial part of church experience. If you've gone to church for more than, you know, maybe six months, you will, you will eventually bump up against something that everybody else is like, yeah, this is just what we do. And you're like, okay. And you're just expected to, to kind of participate. And so I want to talk about that today. Uh, the definition of traditions that I want to give you is uh, the transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation or the fact of being passed on in this way. Uh, this is basically this idea that, that we all create things that we find valuable, that we do so often, uh, that, that oftentimes came from the generation before us and that we want to pass on to the generation after us. That's our working definition of tradition today. Uh, these are things we've come to uh, uphold and in many cases even obey. Some of them are very, very old, like having church services on Sunday, for example. Like people just go, yeah, oh, you want to go to church with me? You don't have to say generally what day it is, maybe what time, but everybody kind of expects, at least in, in the evangelical church movement, which is what you're kind of a part of now, uh, to go on Sundays. And some of them are very, very young, like having services on Thursdays, which we have here at Kesson. Uh, it's a Thursday weekend service. Same worship, same speaker, same everything. Thursday's at 6.30 and people are like, well, it's, it's not the same as Sunday because Sunday's Sunday because the tradition is hard to get around. And it really is because a lot of people work weekends. And actually, people have found that on Thursdays, uh, they can invite friends that normally won't go on Sundays because it just doesn't feel like church. Uh, it's also not streamed or recorded. So whatever happens on Thursdays stays on Thursdays. It's our Vegas service, basically. <laughs> It's our Vegas service. So although maybe not church-related, we all have and experience traditions in our own lives. As a matter of fact, we all have so many traditions, there are most likely a few we observe without even really knowing why. I've told the story many times. It's a very typical kind of illustration of traditions that don't really make a lot of sense, but it's the story of the the, the mom who was teaching her young daughter how to make ham for Christmas, and she went through the entire procedure, and there's this part within the, 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 the um, recipe where they cut off the ends of the ham. And the daughter's like, okay, we always cut off the I know that. I grew up that way. Yeah, we cut off the ends of the ham. Why do we do that? She's like, I don't know. We should, we should call your grandma. And so she calls her grandma, and, 
and calls the little girl's grandma, her mom, and says, Mom, I'm, I'm teaching so-and-so how to make Christmas ham. Oh, that's so sweet. We got to the part of cutting off the ends of the ham. Why do we do that? She goes, oh, I don't know. We should call your grandma. And so they call her grandma, and they're like, Grandma, great-grandma, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And she goes, what do you mean? She goes, well, the recipe, it, it says cut off the ends of the ham. And she goes, honey, that's because I didn't have a pan that was big enough. There's a lot of traditions like that in church, a lot, that we're like, it's very important that you cut off. What is this round ham action going on? We don't do that here. And we don't remember in any way actually why. That story works every time, even though I've told it 25 times. It's now a tradition. <gasps> oh, shoot. Right before your eyes, everybody. Uh, let me illustrate another one, a very old one. I want to talk a bit about a tradition that was such a big deal it almost split the church around the year uh, 1000 after Christ. As a matter of fact, some of you are breaking this tradition right now. And that was the tradition of having or not having a beard. There was an actual century between like 1050 and then 1050 to 1100, a century where one of the biggest issues in the church was whether or not People, not just clergy, but people, men, should be allowed to sport a beard in a church service. There's tons of articles on this. Tons of articles on this huge, significant thing. For a while, full beards fell out of style. Men were walking around without any beards. The, the leaders of the church, some of them very old and were nostalgic for beards, started to associate shaving with immodesty. As one abbot wrote in 1043, the empire was besieged by the shameful custom of the vulgar in the cutting of beards and the shortening and deforming of clothing and many other novelties. Basically, how dare you show your naked face to the world? Let the hair God gave you grow. 50 years, people were like, did you see the no beard guy showing up today? Disgusting. And then all of a sudden, a half a century later, Writers associated immodesty with beards, not shaving. One English monk wrote, Now almost all our fellow countrymen are crazy and wear little beards, openly proclaiming by such a token that they revel in filthy lusts like stinking goats. <laughs> Nothing like the church to just share its love, right, with people of differences. It's just, it's beautiful. Basically, how dare you walk around floating your disgusting little goat beard before our God. Get out. That's why traditions are something that's really important to talk about because they're, they're funny a thousand years ago, but I don't know if you realize we have a lot of these right now, a ton. And so you could think, well, then basically we should just switch everything to trendy, but that's not at all what I'm saying. Traditions done in a beautiful way are actually really, really healthy and really important. As a matter of fact, the first traditions came from God himself. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, during one of the days that God was creating, it says this, verse 14 through 15, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons. I want you to just kind of hang on that word seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so if you look a little more closely at that word seasons the word seasons is the word moed 
It's used all throughout scripture, and it's more commonly translated most of the time, sacred feasts. At first glance, it makes no sense why the story of creation, if you were to translate it a little closer, even mentions that all of a sudden there were sacred feasts. You would have read it and let them be for signs, these, these lights in the expanses of the heavens, for sacred feasts. But then you begin to look at that word throughout the Bible. It is found 213 times and at least 145 times that word is used referring to a tent of meeting, an appointed place, time, or season. Within creation, God is beginning to set a way for people to uphold tradition, a way for the Jewish people specifically to move through their, their weekly and monthly sacrifices and festivals and times of worship. This shows that woven into the very fabric of creation, God has already set traditions for his children. Ready-made ways that we are called to remember him and his role in our lives. From the very beginning, from the way the stars move across the sky, God is setting a, a system for us to go, hey, it's that time of year again where we're supposed to stop and remember. So traditions are built into our DNA, our created being, if you will. This remembering sits at the core of what it means to participate in a tradition. And that idea of remembering is so important that it is, I don't know if you knew this, but remember is the second most used command in the Bible after fear not. After fear not, which is, fear not is the, the separation piece, right? Like God's like, hey, I get I'm big. I get I'm, I'm, just, I'm just all these things, but I want you to know you don't have to fear me. I'm going to create a way for us to move through this space together. And the next thing is like, God's like, and by the way, I want you to set up traditions that remind you of that because you're going to forget a lot because I'm pretty awesome. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. Remembering in the, Jew, in the Jewish sense is not the opposite of forgetting. That's not what it is at all. As a matter of fact, we know that's true because it says in the Bible that God himself remembers he remembered Israel. He remembered his children. And we also know that God doesn't forget. So remembering is, is, a, is a way in which you mark something as valuable that you sit within, that you don't just move through. That's why children or my wife demand a birthday celebration on their birthday. Demand. I saw a lot of spouses right now going, see? And a couple of them were guys. So good for you. Good for you. You're just like, yeah, I deserve to be celebrated. Good. We are called to remember by doing, not just going, hey, happy birthday, but by throwing a party, by having an experience, by purchasing a few items. When we're young, especially, or my wife, candles for every single year that you exist to remind us of the importance and the value of this person. We are called to participate, according to that verse, in these sacred times or these sacred feasts. You see it all throughout uh, the Bible and all throughout some of our cultures today. At Passover, for example, Jewish people remember and celebrate their redemption. It's not just get together and break some bread. They're remembering what happened when they were exiled and God came and saved them out of the land of Egypt. At Christmas... We remember the birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and we remember that he was such a gift to us that we give gifts to other people. At Hanukkah, Jewish people remember God's provision and constant hand of protection. And on Shabbat or Sabbath, 
We all remember the blessings of rest, but not just rest every seven days, but the rest that is supposed to come in heaven that we are all building our lives toward. Remembering is a significant part of prompting us to act in our fallen world and heal creation with the gospel of the risen Jesus, the Messiah. Because the only difference oftentimes between you, if you're a Christ follower, and somebody who isn't, is that you've remembered your purpose through his creation of you and your value. And in a sense, they forgot. And your job is to remember in such a way that they go, what's up with that? What's going on with that? That remembering is often the, the hole that's filled in people's lives that they try to, 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 to heal over with all kinds of other things this world promises and then rips away, only making the hole bigger. But when someone can remember that they were created for a purpose beyond just the day-to-day grind, through the traditions through the beauty and the way that God sends his children into people's lives, his children who are supposed to remember, suddenly that hole in all of us can be filled with the presence of God. It's significant, and it should be. And that's exactly why it's a problem. It's like a, it's like a great spiritual goat beard oftentimes, that we grab hold of one tradition or another without any context or meaning and deem it more or less worthy than the rest. We then decide this remembering is so important. See, this is how this is going to go for you for the next 20 minutes or so. We're going to swing one way and you're going to go, I got it. And then we're going to swing completely the other way because remembering is sacred until you decide it's the most sacred. It's beautiful till you and I decide it's the only beautiful. It's the way to God until you and I decide this version of it is the only way to God. Then you have to swing back into your spiritual goat beard theology and go, hold on a second. Am I just part of the 50 years that I'm living in right now? Is the tradition that I'm upholding upholding something eternal or something that fits me well? These are big questions. Because without any context or meaning, you really should be careful, and should I, about what you deem worthy and what you deem garbage. When we cease being a people who remember why we gather in celebration at sacred feasts, we instead become a people who only gather to measure how well or poorly one another participate in the expected festivities we are experiencing. In other words, we just get really good at church. And then we judge everybody who's not really good at church. We become basically a big, giant, spiritual hallway monitor. Like, We're those kids in class with a plastic badge that makes us authoritarian. So we walk around like, you know, like we went and got our master's degree in how to run a hallway and we look at people like, do you want me to, you don't need, you don't want me to write this, right? That's what I thought, get back to class. And it's like, dude, I'm seventh grade and you're in fifth grade, but I'm going to do it because the system works that way. And church kind of works that way. Instead of going to school to be together and learn, instead it becomes all about Who's running in the hall and how many times you've already been to the bathroom that day? We, we measure things that I don't even think really matter that much. Like, for instance, church attendance. Now, you might think that this is a soapbox of mine because this is what God has asked me to do, but it's not. It's not because I don't see that church is only Sunday mornings or Thursday nights. I don't see that. I see that church is wherever we are doing whatever God's asked us to do. Now, I love when we gather, and I think there's a very important 
uh, biblical foundation for gathering, but I don't believe it should be the measurement of how well you and I are doing spiritually. And I know that for some, it, it, the culture is, maybe not for the person, but the culture speaks to that way because I've bumped into some of you after you've not gone here for two months and the first thing you say is, oh, hey, I promise I'm watching online. And I'm like, bro, I'm just like here to buy a zucchini. I don't, I, I'm good. And it's like, but I just want you to know, the worst one that happened recently to me, and if this gentleman's here, uh, hopefully, hopefully this is okay, uh, was recently when I was at Best Buy. And I was at Best Buy by myself in the early afternoon, and I saw a guy that looked familiar to me, and then I ended up standing in line next to him, and he goes, hey, hey, I want you to know I appreciate Kesed and the work, and I was like, oh, I really appreciate that. And he goes, and I want you to know too, like, like we're watching online. And I go, and I wanted him to be so comfortable with that, that I just blurted out in this attendance line. I said, listen, man, it's not a big deal. The lights are really bright anyways, and there's so many people there. I don't even know when you're not there. And I knew I said it, and he kind of looked at me, and I was like, but I, but I love when you are there. And I was like, I, I it was the worst for me, because I was trying to say, yo, it's cool. And he probably knows it's cool, but he also knows, and he's true and right, that church culture says oftentimes, if you're not here with your butt in the seat, you're not close to Jesus. It's just not true, because... Jesus will go wherever your butt is, right? That's just, oh, I don't, that's, I went a long ways for the nine o'clock. That's a regular Thursday thing, but we're still okay? You can tell people, my pastor said Jesus goes wherever my butt is, so good, good. How about uh, stuff like, do you know the worship songs by heart? I've had a lot of people tell me. Like, yeah, I'll know I'm part of this church when I know every single song. And I'm like, good luck, because Chandra's got a lot of new ones. And that's good. And that's okay. How about, uh, we'll just step into it. How about giving? We did a, what is now called our infamous money talk. If you haven't heard it, feel free to go back and check it out. But I, I don't talk a lot about money here at Kesed. I've been wounded by church money at a previous church. And so uh, that's, that I just, it's hard for me. And so finally, through a lot of prayer and, and encouragement, we did a money talk. And, and my whole idea, or I think the Bible's whole idea, is that we give out of grace. We give because we were given so much too. We don't give out of rules and out of guidelines. But that is a hard thing to break in a church because so many people have been messed up by it. And yet, there's not a person in this room, if you got invited to a picnic or a dinner with somebody, that you wouldn't ask almost immediately, hey, what can I bring? And yet, a lot of people show up at church and don't really bring anything because that's wounding for them. And I get it. I went to a church one time uh, that, uh, that had, uh, I walked in, I didn't fully know what it was, but it looked like it was, the whole church was ran by a bunch of military people because all, all their callers, everybody wore suits at this church. I didn't, but everybody else did. And uh, they had like these four different, some people had um, like little metal circles and it was like copper and then uh, and then like copper half silver and then full silver and then silver half gold and then full gold and like e lots of people and I was like well that's kind of cool like are they part is that a what is that a ministry thing is what is that and I asked somebody and they were like no 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 it's their level of giving and so we're gonna pass those badges out right now I'm really excited about <laughs> for some of you we just have pieces of paper for you to stick to your chest because 
you don't participate at all. You're just gonna walk around with a post-it note, a little pink post-it note like, sorry. <laughs> oh, shoot. But that, I, you know, that's, that's the idea. How about small groups? There's a lot of people wounded by small groups. You're not really part of our church till you're in a group. Small group of people that you can do life with. Yeah, now I think small groups are amazing and I think they're a beautiful benefit if you feel led through the Holy Spirit and through where he's taken you to get into small groups. But I'm here to tell you, you can be close to Jesus and not in a small group. Well, and you might already have a small group of friends and it might be a small group of friends that don't even know Jesus and you're the only one and guess what? Because Jesus goes where your butt goes, you got a job to do. (laughs) Which is share the gospel with other butts, right? That's our job. So, all right, that's the last, that's the last butt comment, and I'm not going to do that. I don't know if I'll do that at 11 at all, so. <laughs> Basically, here's what I'm trying to say. Left unchecked, these rule-based traditions, they become what we measure as good or bad. And we start to be people who only evaluate each other based on how well we adopt the traditions that many times are just beards or no beards. This, my friends, I'm going to say it very clearly and with with all the seriousness I can have, this is how religion is birthed instead of relationship with God. This is why there's hundreds of denominations that all say they read the Bible right. Guess what? None of us read the Bible perfectly right. But the tradition says that my grandfather said, that his great-grandfather said, that so-and-so said, this is how it's done. And so we cut off the ends of that ham and we serve it to everybody and we judge everybody who does it differently. But I want you to know that even God himself rejects those who observe his traditions like that. There's a story about Jesus traveling with his disciples. He does this a lot. He preaches in a place. He frustrates everybody in the place, both the people who love him and the people who are against him just leave going, this guy just always sits in this curious middle. He's not Roman enough. He's not traditionally Jewish enough. He's just always like, "Eh, is that really how it is? And so he's walking along with his disciples one day and they understand the culture he's creating. And it says he's walking along on Sabbath and something happens. Matthew 12 verses one and two, if you have a Bible verse on the screen. It says, in that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, some historical context around this. The Pharisees were the very best upholders of tradition at the time, and most of the traditions they upheld were man-made by them. They had nothing to do with the the scripture they had, which was known in essence as the law of Moses. They loved to make up their own requirements pertaining especially to the Sabbath and how you could operate. And according to the Pharisees, you could absolutely not do any work of any kind on the Sabbath. And picking grain was constituting work, even though it's clear in the law that that's not true. Because the idea of picking wheat on the Sabbath was not a violation of the doctrine of the law of Moses, which, of course, Jesus would have upheld. So Jesus replies. This is what he says. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? 
and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the, the priests. Now, more context. Please understand how highly revered David is to the Pharisees. He's their human goal. He's who they want to be. He's who they preach about. He's who they talk about. He is the tradition they have chosen, beard or no beard, to measure everyone else against. And yet, there is a very clear story of David doing something wrong, which, which is kind of mine. Basically, he was so revered. He was like, in our culture, the Tom Hanks version of Mr. Rogers. Like beloved upon beloved. Did you hear the people in the back like, oh, there's Tom. There's Mr. Rogers. There's Tom Bean, Mr. Rogers. Oh my God. Like, like that's who he was in their culture. And so here's what happens. That you need to realize under the law of Moses, the showbread or the bread of presence was only reserved for the priests. And guess what, folks? David was not a priest. David at the point of the story was actually on the run from Saul. Who was trying to kill him because God had said, this is who I'm going to make king instead of you because of his heart for me. And so the Pharisees are like, this man's amazing. He has a heart for God. And you know what the first thing David did when he escaped Saul? He ran to a priest that he knew and he lied. He goes, hey, I'm with some guys. We're starving. Um, Saul has sent us on a, min a, a mission. Do you have any food to sustain us during the mission? Really? He's just escaping with some of his friends. And the priest is like, no, I don't have any food here. I mean, I have the, 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 the food that was offered on the altar last night, but you can't have it. It's for priests alone. And David was like, you, you think Saul will be fine with it, right? Saul's fine with it. Why don't you just go ahead and give it to me? And the priest is like, mm, okay. And he gives it to him. And the funniest part is, oftentimes, even today, as a matter of fact, people preach this sermon and talk about how God has like a swinging value system and how, how God doesn't uphold all his traditions and how if it's life or death or if it's important enough, hey, sin don't matter, hand out that bread. And that's not at all what the story is about. And we know it because of Jesus. What Jesus is saying right here is that the Pharisees have never once condemned David. They're upheld traditions for the sin of eating the bread that was set aside for God. And yet now in this place, they will openly criticize God himself because of their own made up traditions. And he's calling them out to it. And he's comparing them to the tradition they uphold that isn't just while reminding us that there are some beautiful things about tradition that God wants us to understand. They go on from here to have a further discussion about this. And then he wraps up the whole conversation with this passage. Verse 7 and 8, same chapter. And if you had known what this means, this is what he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, if you would have known who's sharing with you this right now, you would recognize the verse from Hosea, which is what Jesus is quoting, which is, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is proclaiming that he is God and the one they are all supposed to be remembering through their traditions. And any traditions that don't point us back to remembering God are worthless, no matter how trendy. He's reminding them that they have forgotten to remember why these traditions exist in the first place, and that instead it has all become about performative obedience and not about embracing the one who stood behind it all 
and in front of them at that very moment. This is how we have to look at traditions, all of them. We have to spin them around and ask, why do we believe this is true? If we don't, then I believe we will continue to operate in this same manner from 2,000 years ago all the way up until today. Our traditions and church have become our religion. We serve it and not the one who designed it to draw us closer to him. And our job is to break them. And so I don't know if you know it or not, but I actually broke uh, a really important tradition to a lot of you today uh, by wearing jean on jean. <laughs> not only did I shatter it, but I'm wearing jean on jean on jean, people. You got triple jean, you didn't even know it. Some of you knew it and you've had a hard time hearing Jesus because of it. Because you're like, if he was really filled with the Holy Spirit, he'd know you can't do triple jean. And I'm here to show you it can be done. This is the silliest tradition. Why is it created to be so? And yet the idea is we all kind of get it. And I think we all do it to each other all the time. Now we're going to, I'm just going to get really personal for a couple minutes. I want to be honest. If you had me pick tradition or trendy, I would pick tradition, hands down. I've had a lot of church hurt, but I've had a lot more church blessing, a lot more. My life has been, it wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I don't even know if I would be on this planet without the community that God has placed around me through his church. And because I love church, I also love tradition. And because I love tradition, I'm really, really good at it. I can adopt them really fast. I can lead them. I can set them down. I can pick them up. It's something that I get a lot of value from. I obey and serve and help, and, and it makes me feel good. And yet, I need to confess that Building this talk and a few other things I'm dealing with in my life right now, I have felt convicted as of late that God wants more than my obedience and performance. He wants more than just me being good at it. While working through this very thing with a friend, he asked me this question that I wrote down and I present to you today. What is more important to God, your obedience or your relationship? This, this stopped me in my tracks. This is what I'm meditating on right now. This is where I go in my quiet space. What is more important to God about my life? My obedience, which I'm good at, which, which I valued higher than, or a relationship? And I, I know based on the Bible, because this is kind of what I do, that it's relationship. It's right there in Hosea. It's exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy, that's relational language, not your sacrifice, the bull and the sheep and the thing and the stuff on the day at the time. Nope, I'd rather you be merciful to your neighbor. I, it, I require or, or I'm looking for, I desire acknowledgement of God rather than those burnt offerings. God, you're big. And if I wasn't seeking, I might become afraid of you. So thank you for all the fear knots. And God, also thank you for the ways you want me to remember how big you are and how much you want relationship with me. It's there within the big traditional verses, like the, the, the Aaronic prayer, the priestly prayer. Listen to the relational language of this verse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his 
face toward you and give you peace. Notice it's not the Lord watch you and measure you. The Lord evaluate you and determine whether or not you have checked all these scriptural boxes he has laid forth for your life to accomplish. The Lord wait to judge you, to decide whether or not you have obeyed good enough in order to enter his kingdom so that you can obey for all eternity, I guess. It's especially there within like baptism and communion. Those, those beautiful sacraments we are told to uphold, which by the way, that worship night that's coming up, um, we're gonna have a whole baptism set up for that. And we had a bunch of people that showed up just to worship and then ended up being baptized and went home in their wet clothes and it was awesome. So you might show up just to worship if you want or you might show up to be baptized. It's a beautiful picture of God, like, like, like being the water and you going under the earth and coming up different, not just cleansed, if you will, from the water, but submersed in his presence. Communion is a huge one, and one we do regularly here, along with baptism, but, but more frequently. Communion is not ultimately about the tradition of this element or that. Communion is about what we've been talking about, remembering. Remembering that God is constantly pulling us into relationship with himself. That it's so important to him that he himself made a way for that to happen through the person of Jesus on the cross. But if we are not careful, it can become not even about the cross itself, but about the elements or the verses of the prayer or how we take it or how frequently we take it. This, uh, this is something I've dealt with a lot. People have been frustrated we don't use real wine here. People have been frustrated we don't use uh, unleavened bread here because those are the two elements that Jesus used. Just so you know, uh, Jesus had a loaf of bread. It was what was available and he broke it and he passed it around that same loaf of bread to all the people at the table and each one broke it. Could you imagine? All 300 of you just getting one loaf of bread and just passing it around, what that thing would look like by the guy in the back row. We'd have a lot of people sitting in the front row on communion Sundays, that's for sure. <laughs> and to continue to uphold tradition, he took a cup, a cup, it said, not a pitcher, a cup. And he drank from the cup and he said, this is my blood, and he passed it around the table. Not a pitcher. Could you imagine one cup? Here you go. Pass it to your left. Just being passed around, all of us drinking it. The tradition and the way in which he, he has offered it has changed. And a lot of people have got caught up in that. And so today, in light of all that, and in light of directing us and pointing us to not get connected only to the elements themselves, in and of themselves, uh, we're going to uphold tradition by breaking it. I've made a lot of people very nervous about what we're doing next, especially this service, the 9 o'clock service. But uh, you're going to be fine. Because Jesus is here with your butt. So all, everything's good. Here's what we're going to do. First, we're not going to use any verses. I'm just going to tell you the story about Jesus and his disciples. We're not going to have unleavened bread or wine <laughs> or even juice. Instead, we're going to offer uh, the communion drink with what we have on hand, which is water. You remember uh, during COVID, if any of you were with us when we did... Uh, we did communion wherever you are with whatever you have. It's a little bit like that, but in a church setting that I realize kind of breaks tradition. So we're going to use the juice. We're going to use water for the juice. And since we have cinnamon roll Sunday this week, guess what we're going to use for the bread? 
cinnamon rolls. Still appropriately broken in the little cups, so everything's fine. And yes, we have a gluten-free option you'll find at the tables if you come up. But we're going to do communion with water and cinnamon rolls to drive home the point that all of us in this room are going to wrestle with the idea of who is Jesus to you? What traditions are you upholding? Do you understand the core desire of him to have relationship with you, not your obedience first? And do you understand that he came to this earth and his body was torn and pierced and his spirit was opened up and his blood was poured out so that you and I, no matter the traditions of our time that are upheld or laid down, can sit with his presence because he loves you right where you are just just now. So I'm going to have you bow your heads. There's tables all around the room. I want to say too, uh, if, if part of your breaking tradition while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed is not taking communion today, maybe you've taken it too often and it's become, it's just become a tradition. Maybe today you need to uphold and take it at home. Or maybe you need to go get lunch somewhere and take it there privately for a moment. But don't feel like you need to take communion today in order to, to fit that mold. Also, those of you who are on a journey with Jesus or you are just spiritually curious, let's say, you don't, this isn't for you. You can watch, you can observe, you can just ask uh, the universe, if you will, if that's the journey you're on, if this is true and this is real, I believe what we believe and call the Holy Spirit will meet you in that space. So let's bow our heads. It says that Jesus was having a Sabbath meal with his disciples. And at some point in the story, maybe he stopped talking enough that the disciples realized he wanted to say something. He took the, the loaf of bread in front of him and he broke it. And they, they watched it tear and open up. And he said, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. And then he passed it to the next one who tore a piece because all of us in our transgressions, all of us are participating in that cross story just like they were at that table. Then he took the cup at the center and he poured wine in it and he drank it and he said, this is my blood that will be poured out for you. And he passed it around the table and as they each participated in that symbolism of drinking that, that wine, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Make this a tradition so that believer after believer after believer will recognize what I've done in order to find them in relationship. Heavenly Father, in this place, as we, as we sit with your spirit and as we walk out, God, whatever this means in our own lives, I ask that you would just find us that you would push past our barriers and our excuses and our reasons and our doubts, that you would enliven us with enough of your presence that we would be willing to ask more questions. I pray that we would recognize this is not the only church that we participate in, that as we leave this place, our families, our places of business, our friend groups, all of it, God, our communities where we can exemplify and glorify you. May you just leave with us in this place as we step into this beautiful tradition. And may we find you within and in spite of our traditions. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Feel free whenever you're ready, no rush to come. There's tables all around the room. Take the, the bread, take the water, take it back to your seat. And whenever you're ready during this worship song, you personally, you go ahead and participate. Really sit in this moment. There's a lot happening in this room. Let's see what God wants to do with it. Thousand 
generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your